You are listening to the Vine Church Sermon Podcast. Thanks for joining us. For more information about the Vine Church, please visit our website at www.thevinemadison.org. Good morning. It's good to be with you this morning. It's good to see familiar faces and new faces. If I don't know you, I'm James. I'm on staff here at the church. And um, man, this is a great Sunday. We, we also not only have like potential new members and these little kiddos this morning, but we also have uh, member candidates, adults, um, some of you all. And I think it's on a next slide. Um, but we just went through our latest round of um, candidacy for membership here at the church. Um, and so these folks on the screen have kind of gone through the class and then uh, a subsequent interview, and we are presenting to you uh, these individuals as member candidates uh, to our church. And so we're coming to you um, and asking just for um, any feedback that may be helpful uh, for us as elders that maybe we need to hear. Um, and maybe it's, hey, these people are awesome, and certainly we should welcome them. Uh, into this church family. And so we just want to give you that time and space uh, to be able to speak into that. Um, And so you can see these names up here, um, but we're super, super, every time we do this, there's always about a list of 10 uh, names every fall and spring. And it is an absolute joy to see how God continues to provide for his church and to to build his church. Um, Just year after year, year after year, and knowing that these individuals represent so much life for what God's going to do in our city of Madison and in the nations. And so there's so much joy that I have in my heart every time we do this, um, knowing uh, what this represents. And for those of you who may not be members or maybe um, you're like, man, why do you guys harp on membership? Um, we, just, we see membership as a big deal of just planting your flag and being known. Um, and surround yourself um, with a faith community um, that's going to help you, uh, encourage you, and ultimately that you too as well can exercise your spiritual gifts doing this Christian thing together um, hand in hand. So um, any questions with that, feel free to send any of us as elders a Slack message. Uh, We'd love to hear from you. Um, So yeah, exciting. Babies, adults uh, here in the life of our church. And also, equally exciting, we continue our Advent series uh, this morning. Uh, together, and we've titled it Long uh, Expected, Waiting with Hope. And last week, uh, James, the other James right here in the front row, um, really, he he took us into Matthew 1 and and helped us see the significance of Jesus's uh, very name, uh, of the hope that really, in a sense, should flood our souls, knowing who Jesus is, that God is with us, that God is saves us. And that's, that's what his name means, literally. And, and that's who he is, and that's the hope that we have as we await his long-expected coming again. And so this morning, we're actually going to turn to, to Matthew 2. We're going to turn to Matthew 2 for our time this morning. And it's a chapter that's, that's familiar, but there's at least portions in Matthew 2 that we often actually, I think, skip over quite a bit when we retell the Christmas story or when our children put on a Christmas play. Because within chapter 2 is really these moments of really absolute terror that Herod induces by like slaughtering an entire village of young boys. And it kind of kills this glorious mood, right? (laughs) Of like this upbeat, festive, like Jesus is here, like the angels, like glory to God in the highest, to like this total nosedive moment of like, and now we're going to kill the children. 
But Matthew records this historical story. And while sometimes I think maybe we skip over it, or perhaps when we read this, really it's a quite terrifying narrative, sometimes I think we put on these like, um, maybe like rose-colored glasses that, okay, fine, it, it happened. I'll admit that it happened. But the bigger deal is that Jesus was born. Well, I want to I do a thought experiment with you guys as we begin our time, because I think a lot of us are so familiar with the Christmas story that we actually have to disassociate ourselves with the story a little bit to remove what we think we know and to actually put on Mary's shoes, to put her shoes on your feet, to put her shoes, this, this young teenage mother who all of a sudden, you know, is pregnant. And to, to really consider, like, what, what if her circumstances are, are your circumstances? What, what would you feel? What would you be thinking about? So, so for instance, again, you're, you're a teenager. You're unmarried. And suddenly, you know, you're pregnant. Which, how that all went down in the story is kind of crazy, Right? <laughs> And then as a result of this pregnancy that you, you know, just kind of came, you expect now that your fiancé, that you're engaged, is, is going to break off this engagement, right? But then in a strange turn of events, he has a dream of an angel telling him not to, so he doesn't. That's kind of bizarre. And then this, this faraway Roman politician says, hey, like we're doing the census, everyone has to return to their ancestral roots, and so even though you're quite pregnant, you have to, you have to go actually like almost 100 miles. You have to make this trip. On foot, most likely. Maybe you have a donkey. We, we don't actually know. But then when you get there, when you get to Bethlehem, you know, somehow, I think this is so interesting, you're, you're actually separated from family. Like, Joseph's family is not in this story. You're, you're certainly away from your own mother as you're about ready to go into labor. And then in this place that's quite less than ideal, right? Maybe it's a barn, maybe it's a cave, we don't know. But you go into labor, and you have a child. Like, that's your birthing room. And then, <laughs> you ever think about this? Like, after you give birth, like, shepherds that aren't related to you, like, start, like, filing into your, you know, quote-unquote birthing chambers. Shepherds. It's like, just wash your hands, please. And then one day later on, we don't know how much later on, but there's a knock on the door and you open it and surprise, it's not like the crazy uncle, but it's like these wealthy foreign astrologers dropping off gifts. And you're like, thank you. This is like the most expensive thing they've ever seen before in their lives, right? Like how are you feeling if this is your story right now? Like the, the gift of cash, the gold, like that's, that's pretty cool. But if you're married, your life has been turned upside down. You expected probably to get married this year, maybe, but to have a baby, like, uh uh. And certainly not like this celebrity baby where, like, poor shepherds and rich astrologers, like, both want to hold him, right? But from here, the narrative in Matthew, it moves quickly from maybe these strange and inconvenient happenings in your life to actually some really terrifying turn of events. You're this teenage mother. You've just had your child. 
And now you're informed, you're being informed that Roman soldiers right now are marching down this five-mile road from Jerusalem to Bethlehem, and they're coming for your baby. And so you flee in the middle of the night, hoping to find refuge in Egypt, which is anywhere from a 100-mile to a 300-mile trek. Again, probably on foot, through a desert, with an infant. And you arrive safely, but as you arrive, you hear the reports from other Jews at this time who are in Egypt that because of you, because, that you, because you left, these Roman soldiers slaughtered every single male child under the age of two because of what you did, and you have to live with that. And you wonder constantly while you're there, like, am I actually safe? It's a heart that I think would be haunted with the notion that these murderous Roman soldiers are looking for your baby, fearful that somewhere, somehow, they're going to find you. And in the meantime, you're trapped. You're a refugee. You're raising this, this child in a foreign land. It's a place far from what you know, far from family. And then Herod does die, and you receive word, and you begin to return home, only to discover that Herod's son, as evil as his father, is now on the throne. And so once again, you detour your plans, and you settle in Mary's hometown, which is a small hill country called Nazareth. And if you're in Mary's shoes now, remember, these are the people that know Mary And so the rumor mill that is probably just churning and churning and churning of like, now how did you get pregnant again? And all all of this is is about a three-year period of time for Mary. Like, how are you feeling right now if you're Mary or if you're Joseph? What would you be thinking? What would you be feeling? And as I look around the room, I know there are incredibly difficult stories that some of you are, are living through. But I dare say that this three years of Mary's life would be one of the most traumatic stories anyone would tell one of us, right? Like, you're coming, then what happened? And then, and then what? And then? Like, it's, it's a bizarre, crazy, traumatic story that they lived. And it, and it really happened to Mary as this young mother. I mean, mothers in the room, like, can you imagine the middle of the night fleeing, holding your newborn infant, knowing that Roman soldiers maybe at any time are going to barge into your home to get your child? What prayers did she pray that night? Did she think that God would hear her, that God would answer those prayers? And I think what's maybe lost in this narrative that maybe we don't think about often that really Mary drives forward this question is, is just where is God in the moments of evil? Where is God in the moments of hardship that hits our life as we're waiting for the coming of Christ? Where is God in moments like that? One of my favorite movies from college, it's not now, but when I was in college was Napoleon Dynamite. I haven't seen it in so long. But in that movie, there's these two high school misfits, if you haven't seen it, Napoleon and Pedro, and 
part of the movie is they attempt to become class president, or Pedro does. And there's this classic scene where Pedro, in a, kind of a setting like this, he gets up and he makes his like, pitch to his classmates of why they should vote for him. He says, if you vote for me, all of your wildest dreams will come true. If you vote for me, all of your wildest dreams will come true. That's their pitch of why he should be president. And as I think about that, I, I wonder, I think like, and maybe it's unconsciously, but is that not sometimes how we think of our own faith in Jesus? That this notion that I, I invite Jesus into my life, and I, and, I, and I believe I know God who's good and gracious, as I invite him into my life, well, then won't he also then give me all of my hopes and dreams and aspirations that I have as well? And we think, well, of course he will. Surely he will. And maybe it's subconsciously. But I know pastors write about this idea, right? The, the book, Your Best Life Now. But, but what about those moments in your life where it's not your best life now? Where neither hope nor dream nor aspiration comes true. In fact, what happens in the moment when, when the, op- the opposite happens? Where it's, it's not your dreams, but it's your nightmares like that of Mary, which comes true in your life. Where is God when terror or tragedy strikes your life, when evil seems to be winning? Where is God when it looks like the train has gone off the tracks? Is Jesus, even in those moments, really worthy of my trust? I think we have thought these questions before, right? Should I really hold on to the hope of God's promises this Christmas? Well, as I've studied Matthew 2 and specifically the prophecy here in 2.15, I find Matthew invites us to understand God and suffering in a way in which we can respond with trust. To trust him even when it seems everything is perhaps falling apart around us. That our hope, which James articulated you know, last week, that Jesus saves, that that hope is secure as we await his coming again. And that's really the big idea I want to drive at today, that our hope is secure as we await his coming again. Let's again pray for the Lord to make this clear for us this morning. Lord, we do come to you knowing we need you to open our eyes and our hearts to your word and your word to our hearts. Lord, we pray for more of your spirit to know you more. Lord, that we can be, and even in a fuller sense, more assured of the hope of who you are, Jesus, and what you have done for us. In your name we pray, amen. Well, if you have your Bible, or turn your Bible on, as James would say, go ahead and look at verse 13. We're going to be in verses 13, 14, and 15. But starting there in verse 13, we see Matthew write, Now when they had departed, and who's they? Who's Matthew talking about? Well, if we look back, we see that Matthew is talking about the wise men, or these astrologers, who are from the far ancient east, who in some way are working their star charts and have like, discerned that this king is going to be born thousands of miles away. And so in verse 1, they embark on this journey to Jerusalem, and they ask the question there in verse 2, which is entirely an inappropriate question, of, hey, where's the new king? It's just not something you do, right? You meet the president, you don't say, hey, where's 
the real or new president, right? You just don't do that. It's disrespectful. It's a bad idea. And especially when you have a king like Herod, who's a little insensitive and known to be violent. But unfortunately, it's this question of the wise men, which really sets off the entire chain of events here in chapter 2. But they do ask this question, and they do find Mary and Joseph. They do drop off their gifts, and then we're told here that they exit the story. So in verse 13, when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt. And remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. In other words, Joseph, you're not safe. Your child has a price on his head. Get out now. And so in verse 14, we see Joseph gets out. They flee to Egypt. But again, it's not an easy trip, right? It's this, you know, at least 100 miles to the border of Egypt, probably having to go further than that. Again, you're, you're on foot. You're with this newborn. Maybe they have a horse. Maybe they have a donkey. We, we don't know. But here, I don't think I'm alone in like a two-hour car trip with my three kiddos. Like, I'm going to be full of complaint because it's awful, right? But here they are. This family is on this road trip, so to speak, for like days, if not probably weeks. And it's a trip, right, where they're constantly looking over their shoulders. Like, did the Roman guard figure out what we're up to? Are they going to find us? Did somebody talk? I mean, it's just like a terrifying, terrifying moments. I think, as they're fleeing to Egypt. On the run from this murderous militia coming for you. Like, how terrifying is that? And I'm sure Mary and Joseph are asking, like, God, where are you? Where are you, God? Why does this keep happening to us? Like, it's one thing after another. And, and for us reading this story, if we're, if we're honest, right? Like, hey, glory to God. Like, we're so great, great God that, you know, Jesus was born. It's, it's amazing. But, you know, as we read now, like, it does seem like things have gone off the tracks here, right? Like, God, I don't know if your plan's actually going to work out now. But in verse 15, as we come to it, Matthew's telling his reader, no, the train has not come off the tracks. And he says there in verse 15, this was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. You see, everything that's happening here is to fulfill what the Lord had already spoken. And we find Matthew quotes from the prophet Hosea from chapter 11 specifically. And you might have a footnote there at the bottom of your Bible. And we know Hosea lived hundreds of years prior to Jesus. And so for most of us, myself included, when I I hear Matthew say, and this was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken, like I immediately think like, that's remarkable that Hosea, hundreds of years before Jesus, is like somehow sees like Mary and Joseph and Jesus going down to Egypt and then like coming back up out of Egypt again. Like, wow, that's awesome. That's wild that Hosea sees this. That's how, at least when I first read it, how I took what Matthew's doing here. But if we actually go back to Hosea chapter 11, we see something actually kind of entirely different. It's on the screen here. This is actually what Hosea says. When Israel was a child, I loved him. And that's reference to God or Yahweh. So when Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. 
And the more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning offerings to idols. Yet it is I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them up by their arms, but they did not know that I had healed them. And we'll stop there. It obviously continues. But let me ask, where in this prophecy from Hosea do you see this idea of Mary and Joseph like going down to Egypt? Like, do you see it? It's not there, right? In fact, Hosea 11 like, seems like it's completely unrelated to anything in the Christmas story, doesn't it? Like, what on earth is Matthew doing? How can Matthew say this flight to Egypt fulfilled the words of the prophet Hosea when it seems like these are just connected by the word Egypt, right? How is this a fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy? Well, it's a great question. And something we need to know is that the Jewish people, Jesus himself, would read Old Testament scripture as we think about being in the synagogue or sitting with a rabbi as telling one coherent storyline all moving forward. And so as you heard a rabbi talk or as you read Old Testament passages, you would understand that any time Old Testament was brought into current, it was not a reference that was just restricted by the words quoted. Not just restricted by these words, but it actually expanded to include everything that's also connected to this one particular quotation. Confusing? Yeah. So let me help. So to understand what Matthew's doing, first we need to understand what Hosea is doing. And then we'll discover the reason Matthew chose to quote from Hosea 11. And and Hosea 11, as we reflect on it, he's actually referencing or reflecting on a past event. He's reflecting on a past event of the story of Israel. When Israel was a child out of Egypt, I called my son. What is he reflecting upon? The Exodus, right? He's reflecting on the Exodus. And in the fourth chapter where this story takes place, God actually calls Israel my firstborn son. And we see in that story that God then says to Pharaoh, let my son go. Or he'll say, let my people go. It's interchanged. Let my people go. Let my son go. Okay, well, thanks, James. But why is that in Matthew's story? Well, I think what's happening here, um, like if we consider like what right now, like what is happening in the narrative of Jesus and Mary and Joseph, like right now in Matthew, what's happening? Like, have you ever heard of a story where, where God raised up perhaps a deliverer, but then some insecure, power-hungry king uses oppression and violence to thwart God's purposes? Well, of course, it's a story of Pharaoh and Moses in the Exodus, Right? And that's super similar to what's happening right now in our narrative, in the life of Jesus, where God raises up a new deliverer, Jesus, but then there's this king, Herod, who's looking to stop God's purposes. And so Matthew, by digging up this parallel connection, brings the story of Jesus uh, with the story of Israel and reminds us that this is not the first time that evil had tried to triumph over God's purposes to save and redeem his people. And, and this is like, you might say I'm like kind of going crazy here, but this is really, really awesome. Because as we study Matthew, we actually find that Matthew's retelling Israel's story. And as he retells their story, he places Jesus in the middle as the main character. Check this out. This is, this is super fascinating. 
Beginning in chapter 1, if we were to look back in chapter 1, the very first words of Matthew 1, it says, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Genealogy is a word, is the same word for Genesis. It's the, you know, the first book of our Bible, right? The beginning story for the people of Israel. So Matthew, by opening his words with the book of the genealogy of Jesus, he's saying, hey, this is the story of Jesus, This is the genesis, the beginning, the new beginning for the people of Israel, or the people of God, I should say. In a sense, the story is starting over, and Matthew is pretty clever. Check this out on the next screen. We see as as Israel's story continues, right, there's this this journey to Egypt. We see that with Joseph, and we obviously see that in the life of Jesus as well. And then, you, secondly, you see there's, there's, there's this oppressive king that's killing children, which is exactly how the Exodus narrative begins back in Exodus chapter 1, that Pharaoh orders every male child be thrown into the Nile River. So Herod, in our story, becomes the new Pharaoh. And then you, we have this, this scene where God calls you know, his son out of Egypt. And then, this is so, so, so clever of Matthew, After being called out of Egypt, the Israelites, they pass through the waters. Paul says they're baptized in the sea. They pass through these waters. And then for 40 years, they're wandering in the wilderness, right? And the way Matthew tells the story that Jesus comes out of Egypt, and then the next story, if we were to look into chapter 3, what is it? It's his baptism. He passes through the waters, followed by 40 days in the wilderness, I think this is fascinating. Because I think what Matthew is doing here is he's showing that the nation of Israel, which is God's son, who was brought out of Egypt, is indicted by Hosea, as we read Hosea, as being the faithless son. You catch that? A faithless nation, failing time and time again to, to, to live out God's redemptive purposes that God gave them. The faithless son. Hosea says, as we read chapter 11, he says, even though as God brought them out, they kept sacrificing to all these other idols and gods. That even though it was God who, he says, taught them how to walk, who, who, who healed them, it says that they no longer knew who God was. So, so how does this fulfill what was spoken by the prophets? It's, the answer is that God sent his son to do himself what his people could not do for themselves. That Jesus, the Son of God, brought out of Egypt is the faithful Son, fully fulfilling the redemptive purposes that he so ordained. Are you with me? Where Israel failed, Jesus fulfills. Jesus is the faithful new Israel. That's the meaning of fulfillment of Hosea chapter 11. Okay, so, so what? How does this help me in responding to God in deeper trust, right? When evil hits, when hardship hits, when everything in my life seems to be going off the tracks. How does this help? Well, I want to I want to give you two closing just real pastoral, I think, applications to consider. One, God's plan is never thwarted by evil. God's plan is never thwarted by evil. And secondly, God's plan is rooted in love. God's plan is rooted in love. And I, I just real briefly look at these two things. 
First, God's plan is never thwarted by evil. And as we, if we, we reread chapter 2, as you examine every like, traumatic turn and twist of this story from fleeing in the middle of the night to, to hearing this report of young children you know, being slaughtered to once again rerouting your life to the small town of, of Nazareth to avoid this evil king. Matthew tells us in every movement of the passage in verse 15, 17, and 23, he says this, that this was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophets. Every movement of chapter 2 is connected to this was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophets. Over and over, Matthew reminds me, or us, that in the midst of this terror that Mary is living, the train has not gone off the tracks. That despite these terrifying, tragic experiences, despite this overwhelming presence and power of evil, God is still working out his redemptive purposes. God has not been surprised by these quick turn of events. Just because the wise men came and set off this like chain of reactions didn't catch God by surprise. Not at all. Everything that happens here is part of God's redemptive plan, which is mind-blowing. Matthew is in a sense saying this, that you can tie a rope around your waist and then tie the other end of the rope around the promises of God. And though evil, it will arise. And though evil, uh, like the, the evils of Pharaoh and Herod, will violently shake that rope, though all that may happen, that rope is secure. That rope will not come undone off the promises of God. God's redemptive plan will never be thwarted by evil. The Herods and Pharaohs of our world will not overcome. Why? Because Jesus has overcome and he has won. Amen? And if that is true, if you believe that to be true, peace, not fear, not worry or anxiousness, peace should be what overcomes our hearts. This is not to say that bad things won't happen to you. It actually means bad things probably will happen to you. But it means we cling to God and his promises in any and every circumstance. For no matter the height of a crushing wave upon us or the depth of a valley that we have to traverse, peace is ours in Jesus. As we cling to the knowledge, the hope that Jesus is victorious. Second, God's plan is rooted in love. And I love that Matthew draws us to the prophet Hosea. I love it. And why does he do that? For Hosea, like many other, these, these prophets are, are, are telling of Israel's you know, failure, calling them to repentance. You know, over and over, in a, in, a, in a nutshell, Hosea is looking at Israel and says, you've been unfaithful like that of an adulteress. You've been unfaithful like that of an adulteress. You've been unfaithful to the God who betrothed you. You've been un, you know, chasing after these false gods who become your lovers. It's a similar message, but for most of us, we know the story of Hosea, right? Who actually embodies this message in his own life. Hosea marries a prostitute. A woman named Gomer. 
A woman running after every lover she wanted. Even having children by these lovers. And enslaved in this bondage of these sins of sex. Hosea deeply loves her. And instead of rejecting her, instead of walking away, Hosea seeks her out. He pays the price tag. He redeems her. He restores her to a place of honor. He gives back to her all the love that she has spurned. You know, just as Hosea marries Gomer, God became Israel's husband. Just as Hosea loved her, God loves Israel. And yet, just as Gomer was unfaithful to Israel, Israel was unfaithful to God. And as Gomer was enslaved by her lovers, Israel was enslaved by her idols. And yet, in the same way, it was Hosea's tender love reaching out that brought Gomer back. In the same way, it's God in his love reaching out to bring back his people. And I love how Hosea says in chapter 11, for when Israel was but a child, I loved him. Because it lets me know that God has always loved his people. It's a love that's always been there. By bringing Hosea into this narrative, Matthew reminds us of this incredible love of God our Father who's always had this for his people. And even when it appears our life is going off the tracks, God's love is sure and constant and always there. And I know some of you are living a nightmare. I know that life for some of you is really hard and challenging and difficult. And some of you need to hear this this morning that God's love has not changed, but it's sure and constant. And some of you, I I know in the other spectrum, maybe you're given over to sin, unrepentant, enslaved to the bondage of some power of sin. And you need to hear this morning that God's love is still available as you come to him in repentance and faith. God's love is still there. Whether you're living a nightmare or whether you're enslaved in sin, God's love has not changed. Nothing will overcome the eternal love of God. God's redemptive plan of salvation is rooted in love, and God's plan is never thwarted by evil. Let me close with this encouragement. Matthew reveals in this narrative really the heart of God, doesn't he? Of his great love for his people. But think about it. God willingly entered into our human experiences, into our human tragedies and and disappointments and, and, and hardships. And he even subjects himself to these very evils. He 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 lives them. And church, when Jesus knelt in the garden before his death, weeping over everything that was about to happen, knowing he was about ready to die and to be separated from his father, Jesus' wildest dreams were not being met. This was not an Napoleon Dynamite moment, right? 
but it was precisely that road through suffering that paved the road for our eternal and glorious hope. See, friends, the roads of our lives will probably get even more bumpier than they are right now. I can probably guarantee you that. Our lives will be filled with hardship. At times, it will seem like we're just completely off the tracks, away from God's love. But church, the same baby born in our story in Matthew 2 is the same Messiah that's crucified by the Romans, is the same God who was raised from the dead, is the same God who is our only hope in our lives and our world. That's what we see in Matthew. Our hope is secure as we await his coming again. May that deepen and may we rejoice in deeper, more profound ways this Advent season as we celebrate his birth. Jesus, we love you. And I pray that you would help us crown you as king in our lives. Lord, I just want to take a moment and recognize that there are painful realities in some of our lives this morning. There's much brokenness, I know. And Lord, I pray that you would be the encourager through your spirit and by the power of your word. Would you minister to our souls? Lord, would you remind us of your great redemptive love that you have for your people? And Lord, create in us a courage to come to you in repentance and faith and honesty to know you and to, um, to find more of you in our lives, whatever we're going through. Lord, I pray for anyone here who does not know you, Jesus, that they would hear this good news that Jesus came and and suffered um, our own human evils for our sake, that we may be set free and live with him forever. Lord, I pray that you'd open the ears of any who need to hear that this morning. Lord, we love you and are so thankful for this good news of salvation we have in you, Jesus. Again, Lord, we pray that you'd help us by your spirit to crown you as our king. Amen.